back, Jeff. Oh, you know what? I forgot to record that first part. Can you do it again? <laughs> really? Seriously? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I was so enthralled. I have to push the record button after answering the thing. And, oh, I don't know. You were just Jeff, far too... Your Jeff, charisma. Jeff. Jeff. Spellbound. Have you, hit rec- have you hit record now? Have you? Yes. Have you hit record now? Yes. Have you? Yes. This should be the, this should be the opening. The opening should be me going, have you hit the record button? Have you hit the record button? Yes. Yes, I have. I have. I admit it. I, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was pretty great, though. So. Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to episode 131 of Wait, What? A Comics and Pop Culture Peaceling. Graham McMillan finally gets me to push record so we can discuss the mess that is DC's 3D cover month, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, and Twitter, the first issue of Trillium, the reprinting of In the Days of the Mob by Jack Kirby, Rogue Trooper, Cat Shit 1, Copra Compendium Volume 2, Cartusia Tales, The Billy Joel of Comics, and believe me when I say, much, much more. Show notes for this not-quite-two-hour episode are available over at savagecritic.com, and we always welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. As always, we thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Oh, man. Hey, so I was... You don't listen to many podcasts, right? You, you Unfortunately. listen to the occasional. Yeah. Um, I, I listen to more, shall we say. Yes. Um, and I've noticed that lot, what a lot of the podcasts do is they're like, they're like, I'm welcome to the blah episode. Like the Slate Political Gap Fest I listen to renames himself every episode for the particular topic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Right. And House Astonish uh, has a, a sort of breakdown of what they're planning to talk about at the start of every episode. And we don't. No, we don't. We don't. They're like, you know, this is the whatever, you know, this is the Gabfest where we're talking about Obama and Hillary Hamlet, or whatever. Yeah. And we don't. We're very, very bad at that. But I, we could, because I totally think I know what we're going to talk about this week. Really? Can, yes. Can, can I make a pro- Okay. Yeah. I think we're going to talk about the fact that um, Mark Miller. Jerry Conway and Len Wein and Tom McFarland are not the best ambassadors of the comic industry. <laughs> uh, and I also think we're probably going to talk about the DC Returnable, or not Returnable, DC uh, Villains Month, shall we say, shit show. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. I definitely, the shit show was at the forefront of my mind. Um, I wasn't sure if we oh, were going oh, to mention I, I the rape-tastic trio or not. So. I, 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 oh yeah, I, yes, I do, really. But talk to me about the shit show, because I, I am going weirdly back and forth about the shit show. Are you? Why? Yeah, I really am. That'd be interesting. Uh, here's my thing. I think DC have horrendously fucked this up. Like, amazingly, mind-bogglingly fuck it up. Sure. But if you think about what is happening as a result of their fucking it up. Mm-hmm. Not everything's going to be three ninety nine. There's going to be two ninety nine ones available, and digital's going to be two ninety nine, which is what a lot of people were complaining about the first time. Yeah. It's one of these things that DC has been fucked. The retailer has been horrendously fucked. Right. But the end result for the fans, quote unquote, is kind of what they were asking for in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like weirdly ambivalent about this. I'm like, okay, the retailer is getting horrendously screwed. We'll see, and this is it. The, the, my my big problem about this is, you know, at this at this point, DC is a lot like Ronald Reagan. You know what I mean? Like, it <laughs> it is actually easier 
Like, you cannot tell if DC is just so utterly inept that they did this on accident, or they are so malevolent that they did it on purpose, you know? Um, back oh, in... Do you really think Do you think they did it on purpose? Oh, yeah. Like, do you... Do you... Really? Yes, I do. I think they completely manipulated <laughs> the numbers. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I, They've I, been I, obsessed with the numbers before. Like in the last yeah, year, they've yeah, moved yeah. heavily towards doing the numbers. They yes, turned yeah. around and did were not going to... Even though it would have made perfect sense for them to do any number of things, including moving the FOC back or opening the window wider at the time yeah, they or, came or, up or, with it, Soliciting a month in advance for fuck's sake. So exactly. Runs before. Yeah. No. I know. I know. All of those things could have been in place. Now what they've done is they've done a situation where they have, they spent the majority of this system, setting this up like, oh, there's no other way to do it. We have to do it this way so that they created a run on the numbers. Then they've turned around, said that there's going to be allocations, but. And then, on top of that, they came up with a lower-priced framework to not leave people out at the digital and 299 retail level. So, rather than doing all that at the beginning, like if they'd set all this stuff up at the beginning, and it really doesn't require, it only requires like 10 minutes of thought, if that, to avoid the majority of these problems, they deliberately ended up, they ended up here, and it's hard not to look at it as not something that they did in order to artificially create allocations, run on the books, and do that with the highest number of sales at the highest price point possible. Well, here here's my my rebuttal to that. Because mm-hmm. I, I think you make a really good case, but here's my rebuttal. One, would they really do that considering how incredibly amateurish slash just basically incompetent they look as a result publicly? Oh, yeah. Are they willing to... You think? You yeah, think yeah, they're yeah. willing to... To look that inept. If you end up winning the market share for your month, yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, Hibbs was kind of saying that this was like the situation where you yell, like, if if there's a fire in a crowded movie theater is the way he put it, there's like two ways that you can handle it. One way is you get everybody out in an organized fashion with people standing there with like, you know, little lighted cones pointing the way to the exit. And the other way is to light a fire in the theater, you know, is basically to start yelling out fire in the balcony and firing off gunshots Yosemite Sam style. (laughs) And that's what DC's done. Because, because here's... I, I'll just finish this one point because you're absolutely... Oh, wait. Are you still there? I am, yeah. Oh, okay. Because you froze up because I think you were like in midpoint. I'm like, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> so, no, keep going. Okay. So is... um Except I think I lost my train of thought. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, you go. You go. Okay. Here's my second rebuttal, which isn't even a rebuttal, but it's a potential... Uh, it's something I I think I don't understand if your argument holds water. Mm-hmm. By giving, by basically making the announcement they made this week, mm-hmm. have they not allowed retailers the chance to drop all of the three ninety nine orders to essentially zero and order the two ninety nine books? They've not locked anyone into the three ninety nine books. But you notice they? how they mentioned the allocations beforehand. So they're already talking as if. I so, mean, so that are are the are the retailers locked into that then or not? I think they can change it on the final it, uh, it, when it comes to final order the final order cutoff. The problem sure. is they have a very short period of time in which they have to reestimate those numbers. Uh, as I think Hibbs points out in his column over at yeah, Savage yeah, Critic, yeah. they have th- these 
retailers, the more responsible ones, have spent, you know, two months trying to test the waters and pre-sell this material, you know, and then they have to turn around and not. And of course, you know, they there's a disincentive for them to do so. And by announcing that there's allocations, they're already saying, like DC started in with the, well, there's going to be a run on this, you know? So... Mm-hmm. It would be one thing if the sequence of events was different. Oh, and I remember my other point. The difference between yelling crowded, you know, fire in a crowded movie theater, yelling crowd in a fiery movie theater, is that, <laughs> is that there's no such thing as bad publicity as far as sellouts are concerned in this industry. So, I mean, in terms oh, no, of, no, like, no, you I, know I, what I, I mean? I totally know that. Like, yeah, because no matter what happens... What was really interesting, you mentioned, you brought up Brian's essay. What was really interesting to me about Brian's essay was that he actually talks about his numbers, the actual number he ordered of Joker, mm-hmm. which is above his Batman orders, right. which really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, not that I, I, I think Brian is like, uh, you know, against DC or, or would do something to take money out of his own pockets, mm-hmm. but I was surprised that his orders were so significantly higher than his Batman numbers right. for the Joker one-shot, considering he has been very open about the, the success of DC over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was really surprised that someone who, for me, is a conservative with a small C retailer in that way, yes, is, yeah. had ordered so much so far above yeah. the Batman numbers. And it just made me think, oh shit, there are going to be retailers out there who will really have ordered ridiculously above their normal numbers because they'll be speculating. Exactly. And so yeah, there there is almost no way that DC will completely demolish the September numbers because of this. And yeah, it's true. They will have a sellout. Yeah. And they'll be able to say, look at our market share. We did great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I still, I still think that I still think that if DC were going to do something like this intentionally, it would look better for them than this. I I, I just feel that they come out of it looking so badly, right? That, that, or so, so bad rather that that it's it, that if they were going to manipulate the situation, and don't get me wrong, I completely think that DC would happily manipulate the situation. Yes, but they would do so in a way that would be more favorable towards them. You... I think they look so bad as a result because of this. Okay considering how badly they've been treating their creators repeatedly for the last few months and I mean oh including today did you see Kevin Maguire yes yes you know so <laughs> so here's my thing is it's like and they really honestly the last time they were confronted about it just like a week or two ago they were like no like they don't have any game their their game is totally we don't care how bad we look like, it seems to me on the creative front, that has been consistently their approach for the last couple of months. Like, at least since the summit where they were like, no, 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 you guys matter to us. And then by the end of the summit, we were like, no, 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 we're just kidding. You know, we don't. We don't care about you at all. You, you know? guys heard that at the start, right? That's fine. Let's just move on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so, I mean, this is the thing. Is It's like, I don't think DC... DC's ability to control their spin is incredibly clumsy, but they've just decided not to let that stop them from doing the things they've, that they're going to do. And I think that this was one of those things. Now, I am willing, because I do feel that, you know, months ago that we talked about um, how... Uh, months ago, I don't know, a month ago, we talked about how this whole event really smacked of... Um, 
you know, it had Dan DiDio's stamp kind of all over it in terms of yeah. the villains events and all this other sort of thing. So DiDio is remarkably, um, seem, seems uh, remarkably capable of turning, trying to, wanting to turn the ship around on a dime. So I'm like, there is part of me that is willing to concede the idea that they, that they tried to force themselves down this corner and then, and then, and really didn't give it any thought, you know, but I don't, uh, you know, I mean, the sad fact is whether through, you know, malice or whatever, I feel that it, it really, it's such a blatant manipulation of the numbers, whether inadvertently or not, it's really hard to believe that they accidentally maneuvered, did all this, you know, to, to greatly engorge their profits. You know what I mean? Like, in, in oh, no, yeah, no, no I, I think the difference between you and me is I think, I think we both agree that they were, this is a blatant attempt to goose their numbers. Yes. But I think it's a blatant attempt to goose their numbers that kind of went wrong. And you seem to be arguing that no, all of this is going to plan. Yeah, I think so. I do. I do think so. Because I think they, you know, they, they had a, they did a lot of really weird choices, like right out of the gate with this, including, you know, having retailers fly down to see to Burbank down because we're in San Francisco and you're in Portland. But you know, retailers who were who could take the time off and spend the money to fly out to look at these cards, you know, that was their only real access to it. I mean, like it, it already had like a weird like they were already doing their best to keep the retailers in the dark right from the get-go, as far as I can oh, tell. I, yeah, and again, that struck me more as an aptitude than malice. That that struck me as, oh, wait, they're going to want to see this beforehand? We've only got this one sample. As opposed to, you know, word, we've got a secret plan. I honestly, I honestly put all this down to just incredibly bad planning and sure. management. Sure. I, 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 than, I, I, than thinking it's a scheme. Yeah. Well, again, maybe if the result means that they end up like losing bajillions of dollars, but it's like, it's, this seems to be the sort of situation where it's like, Oh, we're going to make money. Oh no, wait, wait, wait. We're going to make mountains of money, but, but all an accident, you know, you know, it's like the banks. It's like, <laughs> oh, who knew that, you know, like, we weren't controlling things. Like, we couldn't have predicted this was going to happen. Excuse us, we have billions of dollars, and now we have to proceed to foreclose on everybody. What can you do? You know? It's like, yeah, I, I, it doesn't ring right to me. It just really doesn't. And, I mean, I think the sad part is, again, like with Ronald Reagan, is, is that there is this idea that if DC, if it sort of, DC continues to maintain this sort of like, oh, we're inept, like, what could we have done? Like, we weren't paying attention. Like, I just, I don't think that the, I just really, like, it's go just going to happen again in some other way. And again, the situations that DC has had under their control, where they, things have been brought up to them and, they, and could be redressed, they very specifically have chosen not to redress, you know? Again, like the creator Wait. situation, like okay, I, I was, I was sorry, I'm changing the gears on yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, and I think that's the problem. Like opening up 2.99 for digital sales, you know, for non-lenticular copies as a way to you know continue selling your books. You know, try and goose those. I feel that the fact that those announcements were lumped together really do seem like those are 
an additive sales strategy that you know came in you know that again they're they're just they're mentioning as a way to hopefully goose even more get more money get another golden egg out of that butthole you know before they can throttle that goose so I don't know I, I just I, I wish I could believe that it was an aptitude maybe six months earlier I would have but you know especially after the launch of like the new 52 but now I just I don't think so I really don't I think it's like they figured out a way to make their sloppiness work in their favor you know and which is like not think of the ramifications go full speed ahead and yet still not and still you know which sounds a lot like Marvel in some cases but it feels like Marvel really over the last few years has a very strong idea of what it's doing and where it's going even if it doesn't necessarily care how it gets there you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so um, you know with that with that kind of framework in mind it's hard not to see DC choosing to deliberately follow that way instead of accidentally because again like I said they don't seem to really care how they look I think they really have that thing in the last six months of like okay well fine you know we're never going to be the prettiest girl at the prom we're okay with that what an incredibly sexist metaphor we should like just steer right into Jerry Conway Len Wein and Jeff Lester as oh oh, see Jeff I was going to go somewhere else because you brought up Marvel I was going to bring up the Kirby thing Mm. the Kirby news Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm so uh, did you see? You, I think you saw the Kirby news. Yes, but we the, should... the Mar- Marvel Marvel's granted summary judgments essentially that they, of course, they own all the Jack Kirby co-creations and creations because it was definitely work for hire. There was yeah, what the family can never get anything. The end. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see if it goes on up because I think that's the that was the court of appeals, right? So there's. I, I don't, I'm assuming the Supreme Court's next after that, unless there's some other circuit. I don't think there is. So uh, do I mean. You think this is going to go before the Supreme Court? Hmm. Really? You don't think you don't think the Kirby's at this point are going to be like, well, shit? No, I think they'll continue to. I mean, because in that way, how do I put it? Like, you've you've got the chances. Why not take it? Now, I don't I don't think the I don't think the Supreme Court's going to hear it. I don't think they're going to bother with it. You know, but hmm. but yeah, I think I think the appeal is going to keep going because I think that's that's kind of what you do sort of, is you keep appealing it all the way up, especially in a situation like this, where in theory, all you really need is for one person to say, I mean, look at the Gary Friedrich case, you know, that was absolutely dead in the water, it seemed, until it totally got reversed and turned around, and suddenly it's chugging along. reversed and turned around-ish. Yeah, ish. Reversed and turned around to, you know, hey, maybe we should actually think about this, as opposed to, definitely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, see, and but but uh, let's put it this way: that's all you need in this Kirby case, you know. And certainly, considering how quickly that the 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 circuit court fell in with that, so yeah, I don't know. I was kind of, I wasn't surprised. I was incredibly disappointed, but you know, I, you know, I, I surprised and and disappointed. I guess I don't know. Can you be disappointed and not be surprised? Like, I guess no, you, you totally can. You totally can. I feel that, that I feel that describes my attitude towards most comic industry news. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think I definitely think you can. I think you can be like I think you can be surprised and disappointed because you hoped for more right. as opposed to you expected more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's exactly it. You know, right. it's very much the pessimistic world worldview of you know, I really thought things might be better than this, but why was I thinking things are always shitty? You know what I mean? Like, 
historically, historically everything is shit. Right. Right. Exactly. So, what was I really expecting? Thinking things might not be shit. What? The end. I have wah, to. Wah. Wah, wah. Graham, all you have to do is leave out the wah wah, most punctuation, stretch that out to a couple hundred pages, and you're you're our next Cormac McCarthy. So I ho- seriously hope, you know, like I I'm that I can do that. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll just keep talking like that, and I'll do the uh, speech to text thing in the Mac, and then see if what comes out. You should. It, it'll definitely work. Oh man, the text to speech. Oh my god, I have to start doing stuff with that. That would be great. Like some sort Obviously, of like you, all you caps the, rants. You have the fun uh, thing of being American, so you don't have my accent. Because holy mother of God, does it have problems with everything I say? Because I at one point was like, this is great. I can totally just like, you know, say things and it will do it, and I won't have to type it. Because I hate, hate, hate. I mean, I'm very bad at typing. But I hate like transcribing and things like that, and I was like, oh, yeah. "This will definitely this this will make life so much easier." No, no, it doesn't, because it doesn't understand what I say. It just doesn't. It makes a guess, and it's horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> oh man, you should totally send send me a sample, and like we can like put that up as the image for this podcast. You know, <laughs> it's like Graham. I am ready to hamburger a muffin. You know, and it would be that would be the best. Man, I would totally hamburger a muffin right now. Man, I would too. Now that I've said it, I'm like, oh, hamburger You're a vegetarian. Muffins. You wouldn't even hamburger anything. Come on. Well, I wouldn't put actual hamburger on you'd, it. You'd veg, you'd tofu burger a muffin? Yeah, that sounds hideous. No, I mean, you'd, you would like... Veggie burger a muffin? Yeah, no. What you would have to do... See, what I would do is I would probably actually savory out the muffin. So it's, it's like the muffin and then the hamburger meat would be like... Um, ground candied pecans and caramel, right? And then you sort of jam it in there or something like that? Uh Uh-oh, Jeff Lester. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Short first. Hey, so, uh, taking a food break for a second, the Salt and Straw has opened down the road from us. The ice cream place? Yes! Yes. Oh, Jeff, first of all, uh, you should come up here again because... Salt and Straw is just down the road from us, and come on. Oh. Uh, and secondly, yeah, when you next see me, I may be much fatter because we have an incredible ice cream place right around oh, the corner. From man, us and is it is it is it as filled with tons of hordes of waiting people as at the other Salt and no. Straw? It, it isn't isn't uh, every time everyone else goes by they're like the line is out the door and every time I've been there it is, that has not been the case like oh I've been in five minutes Pe- people who don't who haven't been to Portland and don't know Salt and Straw is a magnificent ice cream parlor with just like amazing that you know the sort of very hipster flavors that everyone's so fond of that sort of yeah, strawberry the la- the balsamic vinegar was, yes the last one I had was the sea salt and caramel oh god I uh, which that. was which was so good, uh, but I did try the uh, local blackberries and rice krispies. Oh God! One, what? Yeah, which was pretty much what you'd imagine. Oh well, as long as the rice krispies are crisp, did they do something? To, did they extra sugar They're, those? Yeah, it's, like, it's like rice krispie treats. Oh, um, you know, you know the red, yeah. sort of chewy rice krispie treat. Yeah, it's like that. Oh man, Graham, what'd you do? That's ow. Okay. <laughs> You live in San Francisco. You have amazing food down there, too. And amazing ice cream. I know. I just haven't been eating any for, like, the last six weeks. And I have to say, well, like... That, that's your own fault. I know. Who do I have to blame? Although I did have an it yesterday for the first time in, like, a month and a half, and that was that was pretty sublime. So, 
But yeah, there's a few like the last six weeks I've been eating super healthy and barely any sugar and, and flour and stuff. And I have to say, with the exception of just a few items like waffle window waffles, um, the chocolate malted ice cream from Humphrey Slocum, uh, okay. sandwiches from Ike's Deli. Uh, the cornmeal pancakes are just for you, and maybe a handful of small other items. I'm actually not. I'm not really. You're not missing anything. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Like even the the it's it, which I thought was going to be super sublime because it was like six weeks. I was like, yeah, these things are really good. But I was kind of like, nah, yeah. Then I had. Then God help me, I had a peach after lunch today, and I'm like, oh my God, this peach. So I don't know. I think I'm turning into a weird old man. You're, you're basically. changing. Yeah. You're I know. It's, I'm grossed Some, out by myself. Gone, so, yeah. I'm like something's gone gone horribly, horribly wrong. I have to tell you while we are taking a break from traditional comics gossip, uh, I have to tell you, uh, Kate and I were watching the Colbert Report the other day. Oh, yeah. And the Colbert Report, where he did the Daft Punk thing, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you heard about, right? Yes. Did you see? Did you see what he did instead of Daft Punk? No. So he basically had Daft Punk were booked to uh, appear. They didn't appear. He and many of his celebrity friends danced to Daft Punk for five minutes, including Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. Wow. Okay, uh-huh. we're watching the, We're watching this video. Brian Cranston ends up in like a brown check suit on roller skates, and he and Colbert are doing like roller disco moves. Okay, Kate and I are watching this, and Kate turns to me and she goes, "He looks like Jeff." <laughs> <laughs> Right now, ladies and gentlemen, if you've never seen Jeff Lester and you're wondering what Jeff looks like, get a picture of Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad, draw a massive beard in him, and according to my wife, that is what Jeff Lester looks like. Ah, Secret of the stars. That right is the sweetest thing ever, I and not in any way accurate. You did tell her that, right? Like I, I said I didn't see it, but... You know that's fine. She she totally sees and that's good. I should also say that for anyone who doesn't know what I look like, I will tell you that I was uh, asked at Comic Con this year whether I was Moby cosplay or Dean Pelton from Community cosplay. So there you go. I am I am a bald person wearing glasses. That's all you, you need to know. You should so totally dress up like the Dean for Halloween. Like just one of his costumes. You just have to pick one Community outfit and then answer the door and hand out sexually ambiguous candy to the kids. And it's perfect. <laughs> mm. You say that like I'm not going to be doing that already. Come on. Oh, right, exactly. Well, okay, so to take this a little farther, because, you know, you and I have always only, we've known each other a relatively short period in our lifespan. Who did you used to get compared to when you were younger? Like, and had hair? Uh, I didn't. Nobody? Ever? Uh, let's see, when I had, because I used to have really long hair and a beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, uh, I got compared to Rasputin a lot <laughs> during that period. Uh, the Mad Monk, not Peter Rasputin of the X-Men. Uh, <laughs> who else did I get compared to? I, I want to say that was it. I wasn't compared to many people. You know, didn't they actually do an X-Men limited series where they actually had Peter Rasputin no, be no, a descendant no. of Rasputin the Monk? Really? I think oh, they God. did. There was there was a close series called Bloodlines. If that's the series that it was, then that's horrendous. I know. That's a terrible idea. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, what? From Mad Monk to Mad Mutant! Exclamation point. Yeah, Although exactly. Imagine, imagine Colossus, like the whole steel thing, mm-hmm. but with Rasputin's beard. That would look awesome. It, it would. That'd be like awesome. daggers hanging off his chin. 
Dude, that's actually a pretty decent image. Who knows if they used it for the miniseries? They probably didn't. Uh, so, wait, so they didn't compare you to... Gosh, that's funny, because I saw one photo of you, and, well, okay, on the one hand, I think you're lucky that, like, Russell Brand came after you, because I think if you guys were contemporaneous <laughs> a little bit... Because, you know, you kind of yeah, had I, the... I, 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 no, I, I had maybe the hair and the beard, but I didn't have anything else. Yeah, I was much closer to Rasputin than I was Russell Brand. Trust me. It's so funny um, because even though I saw Ru- you, Ru- Russell Brand is is considered an attractive man. I think that's just where we'll leave it. Okay, Rasputin and I have much more in in favor there. What about yourself? Uh, you know, um, there was a very okay. So when I was when I was in college, I was significantly thinner, like much much thinner. Um. Uh, you say that like you're fat now. <laughs> okay, well, technically, I am fat now. But I mean, like, when when in I was to to Kate Boss, I am definitely fat now. Well, okay, so when I was in college, I was like the same height that I was now, so like five eleven. But I weighed maybe one hundred and fifty pounds, one hundred and fifty five pounds tops, which is anywhere from ten to fifteen pounds under what the national height weight think guide says that i should be um which is absurdly thin so i i'm now really curious what i should be for my height uh you can look it up and you will be appalled you will be like great so i'm a fat bastard is what they're saying so um, Uh, okay okay i'm only 145 pounds oh you are well wait how tall are you (laughs) i'm five five eight oh god you're probably really close to about right then you're probably i although i don't know can one of us go online without crashing the system and find out? Like, let's let's see. Because uh, I'm just going to Google all, how is not, fat is Graham McMillan. Totally not how fat is else. Graham? But, um, Jeff and I have gone up on a tangent, and you're going to have to deal with everyone. <laughs> uh, what's it called? Is it called the the height? I don't. I, 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 yeah, I don't. Uh, hold on. Yeah, just try. Um, uh, height. Yes, ideal heights and weights chart. Yes, exactly. It. Yeah. Okay, so I am five eight, and I, oh, I'm over. No, I'm right in thing. One hundred thirty nine to one hundred sixty nine pounds. Oh, look at you! That's fantastic. That is great. Whereas I am, oh, this you is one fifty five to one eighty nine. Oh man, this is not good. I don't want to run this app. There's, I'm like totally getting spammed out here. Uh, let me close my stupid thing. Um, uh, that's funny because it said it said to me like that did not seem like that's a legit great. thing. I was going to say, you totally froze for a second just after talking about the apps, which was hilarious. You're like, I'm getting it spammed out, and then you just froze, and I was like, that's it. Jeff's visiting a really shitty website has finally ruined the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm looking at this. It's finally all gone to shit. All right, let's see if Jeff, I can... As long, as long as you're under 189 pounds, you're good, according to this index. Okay, well, technically, I'm not. I'm still fat. Uh, although not by much. Um, and also, I swear to God, those charts were like, they wanted me to weigh like 175. So let's see here. 5'11", my target weight is 164. My high end is 183. This is according to, this is according to Disabled World's uh, height, height to weight ratio. Um, let's see. So wait, five eight. It says one thirty seven, one fifty four being ideal, and one seventy one being perfect. See, so you are perfect. 
So I, I am. Let's just let's move on from that. Topic. As we knew, I am perfect. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so so I was okay, really so, yeah, really that's... thin, and my face actually looked like weird. Like I don't know how to say it other than well, let's put it this way: a lot of people oh, thought. Please tell me there's photographs of this. There probably is that I didn't want to show you. I looked. I looked kind of gangly and kind of Eastern European. I looked like I came out of one of those countries where they didn't feed people correctly, and so they had cheekbones, but they also looked more lupine than you would like. So consequently, and this will show you how weird looking I was. The only person I got compared celebrity I got compared to consistently was the Edge from U2. That's spectacular. Yeah. No, no, no. That that is great. You've gone from the edge to Brian Cranston. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's that's, a huge that's improvement. That's pretty great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty great. Well done, everyone. And the next time I see you, I want to hear some guitar work from you. I want to see you work the frets, Jeff Lester. I I can't do the closest I can do is I can like put on an ugly hat and rock back and forth. That's about as good as I get. Now with the beard, I don't. I think I look more like Grumpy Cat than I do look like. I look more like Tartar Sauce than I do look like. Than I look like Tartar uh, Sauce. Yeah, isn't that the name of the cat? That's the name of the Grumpy Cat. Is it? Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I thought for a second you were actually naming the condiment for a second, and I was like, <laughs> "That's that's great." I look like I look like ketchup, Jeff. <laughs> and, and moving on. Do you? Yes. Okay. So. Well, I have a bit of a sunburn, so I do look a bit. Rougy. Yeah, I was about to yeah, say it's tough to tell with the sun behind you, but you do look you do look a little uh, rougey. I'm, I'm looking a little bit like a yeah, like a lobster. It has to be that. It's it's been sunny here. That's all I'm gonna say. Hey, yes, Jerry Conway. Let's let's finally move on to something that the listeners will want to hear. You're well, just frowning and shaking your head now. Okay, so to to be fair to Jerry Conway, which is actually not a situation that I really want to do for the most part. Um, oh, what's Conway done to you besides kill off Gwen Stacy, whom you were probably in love with at the time? No, actually, the one of the few things that I find, like, you know, like, Jerry Conway's run on Amazing Spider-Man is kind of the shit for me, you know? Like, and his whole, like, the de- ongoing developing romance, the slow-blooming romance between Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson that happened over the course of, like, two years after Gwen Stacy died is just awesome. Um... And that clone storyline, no, I'm I'm a huge Conway fan on Amazing Spider-Man. It's just, well, part of it is, of course, in Sean Howe's Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, I think it followed up stuff that I'd read otherwise in other ways, which is, is that Conway was an absolute turd as an editor-in-chief. Now, just about everybody but Archie Goodwin and Roy Thomas was in their turns as editors-in-chief. Like, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman did not come off especially great in, in that telling either. But considering that Jerry Conway stepped in and one of the first things he did was cut Englehart from Avengers so that he could take over writing the book himself, or so I remember it, um, I'm not I'm not much of a Conway booster. That said, he did refer to Faith Aaron Hicks as a girl, and then in the second half yes. of the quote referred to, but he did refer to her as a woman in the second half. As a woman. Part. Yeah, did yes. you see that part? Yes. Yeah, so, I did. I, 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 it was a very odd, odd panel uh, for the people who have no idea what we're listening what we're talking about rather um at the television critics association press tour to promote a pbs documentary about superheroes pbs brought out todd mcfarlane jerry conway len ween and someone else right yes there uh... was four and i can't think who the fourth was Shit. anyway they brought they brought these people out to talk about superheroes 
to the television critics. Uh, and it's an interesting group of people to bring out, mm-hmm. uh, in part because none of them have really been a mover and a shaker in the industry for, let's politely say, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, right. Arguably, I mean, it, we uh, could say that Lynn Ween, with his before Watchmen stuff, is the person who's had the material that sort of had the most, I don't know, media update. coverage, if nothing else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. I don't know. It just it it was a very odd thing. But they 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 um they talked about we don't actually know everything it talked about. But in particular, they talked about uh, gender and superheroes. Uh, in part because Alyssa Rosenberg had a really good write up uh, at thinkprogress.org mm-hmm. today. Mm, thank you. Um, and they had a. Uh, <laughs> old-fashioned approach female readers of superhero comics and women in comics in general is that a, is that a polite way of saying jeff yeah that is a pl- well I, I mean this is the thing yes depending on who you talk to they reflected right. their times shall we say yeah I, I see this is the thing that's great is i think that actually um conway and ween actually reflected not just their times but the essential cowardice of their profession in those times. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, I think there was a, they, I think everyone involved came off terribly yeah. and came off, came off very cowardly. Cowardly is a really good way of putting it mm-hmm. uh, because they essentially made the argument that there, while there probably should be some more female superheroes, they probably shouldn't because it's a man's industry and there's, it's not, what was it? There's not, it's not like you have stories about women knights Oh, which yeah, was like the was most incredible non sequitur. It was like, yeah, but you know, superheroes are fictional, right? Like you can do whatever you want to them, right? Yeah, it was. It was a very, uh, a, a kind of simultaneously upsetting and depressing, and uh, also frustrating that so many people were paying so much attention to it. Panel, I guess. Well, I hope that people are paying attention to it because it's, these people are going to fall under criticism, I guess, in that regard. I mean, the thing is, is apart from Todd McFarlane, who generally struck me as being a dickhole in a way that was very Todd McFarlane-y, um, well, even that's not true, because I'm trying to think, one of the things that really appalled me was that they basically did the really lame defense of comic books don't aren't at the forefront of culture, they're at the rear guard of culture. So that they're yes, essentially... They, they actually said, comic, comic books do not fo- uh, lead culture, they follow. Right. What Was that Was that actually the actual quote, yeah. Yeah, which is, um, you know, which is bullshit, which is absolute appalling bullshit. It's certainly, I mean, I this is, I think, the problem, part of the problem now is that... <sighs> Um, part of the, the the discrepancy between having those people up there and the questions that they're asking, like you can arguably even sort of say, for Ween and Conway when they were working in comic books, uh, at the at the forefront, that that was the truth, that they were behind the culture, or rather that they existed sort of independently of the culture, like they weren't attached, they in no way led sure. anything, but that so clearly hasn't been the case for the last you know, 10 years, 12 years of nerd culture. And especially now, I feel or, or, like... Or pop culture. I think you can really make the case now that comics are yeah. defeating mainstream culture because yeah. mainstream culture has fallen under the thrall of, you know, the Avengers movies and of that uh, school of storytelling. 
Yeah. Even things that aren't directly related to nerd subjects are now informed by that sort of storytelling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think what's frustrating is is that, like, I would not be having that that conversation. Hopefully you could get some more, more, you would get a more thoughtful response and you would get a response that seems to more reflect like you said, they, some of them really do seem to reflect the tenor of their times. You know, like McFar, like you know, McFarlane's like, oh, this this is a you know, this is a man's industry, or or even his like, hey, we draw, you know, all the guys we draw are, you know, objectified. All right, yeah, are as objectified as the woman. And the best part was he basically said that, and then it was like, apart from the woman, show more skin. And he didn't seem to see any discrepancy in that at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He was like, no, they're entirely subjectified, except the women are more naked. <laughs> and at no point it was our little light in his brain where he was like, wait, hang on. I get it now. Do you know what I mean? Like, that, that, that was almost willful ignorance. I, I suspect that, yeah, Todd McFarlane unscrewed the wait a minute light bulb in his head like a long time ago. He's like, ah, <laughs> uh, I don't need to change that. You know, and then of course the it's thought that should be like, he... wait a minute, you know, is burnt out. Yeah. It's right about the time they started getting sued by Gaiman, and he was like, wait, I've turned into the very thing I was apparently rebelling against. Wait, I don't want to think about that. Let let me just turn I'll just that off. Screw the unscrew this. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right, now let's see what other what other famous person can I lose tons of money to? Uh, no, famous person. What real person that I've like you know portrayed fictionally that I can now lose money to? Um, yeah. Hey, Tony Twist had a fan base. He, he did, apparently. As did Al Simmons. I mean, the thing is great is he just kept doing it. Like, there's a way in which Todd McFarlane is kind of the Billy Joel of superhero comics. You know what, what? I mean? Well, you know... No, and I, want, I want you to unpack that because that was the greatest sentence ever. I know. Todd McFarlane is the Billy Joel of superhero comics. In that, what, he did, like, one good song that's not even completely good, but half of it is great? I mean, what are you trying to tell me? Okay, first off, shut your face. Uh, I happen to have owned <laughs> all of Billy Joel's albums up through uh, whatever it is. Stormfront. Uh, it's Stormfront. No, I gave up before that. No, 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 no. The, okay. the doo-wop one with the Christy Brinkley and the whole terrible one. An Innocent Man. An Innocent Man is uh, so awful. But, like, honestly, Graham, you would like The Glass Curtain. You really would. Oh, I, I, I actually suspect I would like a lot of Billy Joel, and I, I stay away from him for that very reason. I yeah. will say, uh, entirely unironically, that the middle part of scenes from an Italian restaurant, and namely the, not the bottle of red, bottle of white bit, <laughs> but the, the more jaunty bit, yes. I absolutely adore. Like, if he just did albums that were just like that continually, I would be singing Billy Joel's praises to everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should get you a copy of Songs in the Attic, which are his, like, uh, songs from his first two albums that he felt were overproduced, so he went and did them live in concert, like, with a more stripped-down approach, and they are, they're mm. great. They're lovely. And his, yeah, no, I've liked all of his stuff right up until... Bleh. Anyway, so... But yeah, Billy Joel... Yeah, I was talking about Farland like him, yes. Billy Joel was notorious... Okay, he basically... Div- like, he was married to his first wife, who's the woman who... who he wrote I love you just the way you are about um she basically broke his heart in like a horrible amicable divorce and then he continued to use her brother his ex-brother-in-law 
as his financial consultant slash manager um, after the divorce. That's not going to go horribly wrong at all. Right, and it went horribly, horribly wrong. So Billy Joel is like technically like terrible with money and terrible with understanding other people. He's just been ripped off repeatedly. Wait, so, so, so I was going to say saying... Todd McFarlane makes the same damn mistakes over and over again as does Billy Joel. But then when I started saying that, oh, yeah, I'm like... Todd, Mc, Todd McFarlane is like, yeah, but I feel like you're making Todd McFarlane into a much more sympathetic character than he actually is then. Because oh. here, here you tell the Billy Joel story. Billy Joel is guilty of making poor decisions because and he trusts everyone people. else's malice. Right. Yeah. Whereas I think Todd McFarlane is guilty of shall we just say appropriating other people's names and likenesses <laughs> and then exploiting them and not wanting to give them anything for it. Yeah. Like being a dickhole, basically, is I yeah. think the way yeah. we would go with that. So Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh yeah. So okay, I'm not saying it maybe we'll start looking at like maybe maybe Spawn actually is his scenes from Italian restaurant. But uh dude, I seriously there's no middle section that's good. There's no middle section of Spawn that you're like, that's great. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so much of it, but I'm assuming you're right. Technically, I read, I tried, I tried it so many times. Why, why, why did Spawn suck? Why did Spawn suck? I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing to Spawn. Is is why it sucks. You know what's interesting? This is so funny. I was not going to bring this up, but there was an exchange on Twitter between Eric Larson and Rob Liefeld where they were bashing comic book critics, um, and. And just being so smug about it too, like that. Is, is this is this recently? Yeah, like two days ago, maybe three days okay. ago. I think I think I, I think I was at work Tuesday, and I, I had followed Larson for the briefest period of time and had unfollowed him. Rob Liefeld, God help me, has am- amazingly good taste in movies, so I like continued to follow him. And and for a while there, when he was talking about DC stuff, I was like, oh, he's kind of refreshingly candid and then I was like ah uh. then it came around to the their whole like mocking co- like guys who you know it's like comic book critics what's that all about like you know and just this whole nine yards of the typical blah 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 and I'm like these guys are third rate like you know like I was just like okay first <laughs> unfollow them third, third, third rate at what well at their at their work I think you know what I mean like I honestly mean that that like at one point, because they had they were at the right place and the right time during a massive, massive sweep of speculation, they were held up as these, you know, they were these enormous success stories. But, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, McFarlane, Liefeld, and uh, Larson are really, honestly, at best, like, they've been doing this for 20-some-odd years in the industry, and they're they're all at best kind of okay like on their best day they are okay like i've i've read some i read like five issues of savage dragon like i tried reading more and i was like oh this has a certain improvised charm you know before i realized that it was just it was bad it was bad Mc, spawn is bad and rob liefeld stuff is bad. His stuff is horrible, and he tends to pretend like he didn't dress, you know, Captain America with tits. Or if he did, like it was some weird mistake that he wasn't responsible for. Because I don't know, he was drawing with his eyes closed, you know. But they're not. They're not 
good comic storytellers. You know what I mean? Like, they're not even close to the first rank. They're not even at the second rank. Like, after such a long time. Like, Eric Larson has been producing a monthly comic book for decades now. And the best thing you can say about it is, is that he's produced it every month for decades now. You know what I mean? Like... I I uh, I'm not going to jump to their defense vehemently, but I'm going to say that I think that first of all, I think I definitely think there's a generational thing going on, because uh, none of those guys ever really impressed me. I was never madly in love with any of them. Right. I, I used to, I used to way back when he first appeared. I used to kind of dig Eric Larson stuff. I remember Eric Larson drawing the fucking Doom Patrol mm-hmm. in like the mid '80s. Right. Um. But I think that. It's not that they are not even third rate. I think it's that there's there's something about their work that we just don't get. I th- I think that uh, Larson in particular and Lee Field as well, but uh, for some reason I, I'm unwilling to give him as much benefit of the doubt. But I think they have stylized so much because at a really early age they got the adoration and they got the oh my god you in particular are awesome everything you do is awesome and it pushed them in the so i can just concentrate more on my quirks i don't have to con- i don't have to get down the basics anymore i can totally just concentrate on quirks and that sort of metastasized into this ridiculous they do this they do what they do and they do what they do very well. See, Jeff, they're the best they are there is of what they do. No, see, and this is it, Graham. This is what I used to believe. I used to be, like, the same way. Like, oh, yeah, what they do, they're the best at what they do, and what they do isn't very interesting. But I disagree. They're actually not good at what they do. Like, for guys who have been doing this for so long, they, it like, Liefeld, they each have things to recommend them. But is that true? Or is it just that, again, we don't get it? Could it not be that part of what makes them them is just completely flies under the radar because it doesn't fulfill our expectation of what is good? Well, okay, I'm not talking about art. I'm talking about these are all guys who have been writing and telling their own stories for, you know, decades now, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, literally. Yeah. Now, I think... Like, two and a half decades. Right. I think there are guys who can do work that isn't up my alley that I can see it and appreciate it even though it's not really my thing. Like here's a classic example. Walt Simonson is not my thing. But I can tell Oh Jeff, if I could reach through this computer right now and poke you in the eye. I know, I know. And a lot of people feel the same way. But the fact is like I gave that Thor omnibus two good goes and there's parts of it where I loved it and there were other parts where I'm like, eh, it's of the times. I wasn't reading it like it's like it's an 80s comic and I'm just like eh, it's not clicking for me it's just not you know but yeah. I can see but it's a very good example he's also an acquired taste he's an acquired taste but I can also tell how can I tell it has good st- it like builds it swells it looks like stories he's telling stories like maybe he's not telling them quite as well as I would like or maybe they fall a little flat or they fall on like you know, we were talking about Satellite Sam the other week. Like, you know, I can look at Jake and his work leaves me cold. I can tell that he is brilliant, you know, and it's like, and I haven't even gotten to an American flag yet, American flag, and that could well be the point where it turns around. But even in the course of reading his stuff, I'm like, I feel like what is there 
is there. There's times when it's sharper or looser, but, you know, and so I'm like, I would not mistake Eric Larson's Savage Dragon for that, because when I read the stuff, it reads like somebody who's still kind of like telling their stories by the seat of the pants, and they're not really bothering to put together a story but, particularly well. But again, is that could that not be their quote-unquote style? Could that not be because their audience at the time they became incredibly successful did not want that type of storytelling. They wanted the everything is in your face at all at all moments. They wanted essentially bastardized Claremont. Yep. Where you were either full on and then like for two pages you have a subplot. But you see, know, and they're, they're... if you look at I, Savage I... Dragon or Spawn, the, the, it's actually the opposite, Graham. Most of those issues are dull as are dirt. Yeah, they're almost all subplot. Like, Spawn has been nothing but people sitting around exchanging super dull exposition, you know, for pages at a time forever. Again, is, that, is that not Claremont? I don't know. I, I just, yes, I but Claremont's that, good I... at it. Sure, but I, I guess what I'm That's saying my is, point. I That's why they're third I, rate. But, they're like, there's no, good people. <laughs> there's great people. There's good people. Then there's the, these people. What is so great, listeners, you don't know this, is Jeff and I are actually looking at each other for this podcast, and Jeff just held up his three fingers in front of the camera to prove that there were three people, three layers he was talking about. Yeah. As if I did not understand. He was like, three, look, three. But what I'm saying is, is it not that the audience... Is it not that their core audience, their audience in the 90s, the mm-hmm. audience who made them millionaires, mm-hmm. wanted quasi Claremont and that they're delivering what they want? And so, again, it's not that they're bad, it's that they are not what we recognize as good. I genuinely think, I genuinely think there is generations who were raised on that shit Mm -hmm. who appreciate it on a whole different level because it speaks a narrative rhythm and language that we don't that's the only that's the only way I can uh, understand the affection that people have for like the Jim Lee Uh, Mm X-Men or you know or the McFarlane Spider-Man or any of that because it's it, to me, like it has always been a mess. I read uh, a Young Blood issue recently, mm-hmm. like one of the recent ones, uh-huh. uh, written by Liefeld and drawn by John Mallon. John Mallon, by the way, is a fascinating artist because he is totally, totally in the Liefeld style. I mean, one hundred percent. But there's more to it, and so every now and again, you'll see a page and you'll be like, "Oh, that's right." He's writing. He's drawing the Levell style because that's how he's supposed to draw for this. Right. But he can do other stuff. Yeah. And every, like you just get a glimpse. You're like, that's fascinating. But in terms of like writing, it is. It's the comic I would have written at 15. Right. You know. But I'm like, what if that's an aesthetic that we just don't recognize? Uh, I I think it is. I genuinely think it is. And I think that, honest to God, Jeff, we're too old. I think maybe we missed it. I, maybe, I think we just didn't get it when it happened, and we, we've never managed to get it afterwards. Well, maybe. I mean, I think there's a lot of artists whose work I didn't dig at the time that I was able to get after the fact, you know, and I think even ways to see in which their work has changed or grown. Like, I mean, you know, you can even look at guys whose work has changed um, 
I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But I, my personal theory is, is that these, these are guys who are not especially self-reflective. They're, they are, you know, to the extent that they have tried to like change their style as far as art, that's one thing, but their basic, like their basic ability to tell a story has not improved. And it's, Therefore, I think that, you know what I mean? Like they, and and it's like, even if you say like, okay, this is the stuff that they um, were celebrated for. Like if you, like, if you look at Rye Blyfell's list of movies, it's like, okay, this is a guy who can appreciate good art, you know, at least cinematically. He can't do anything like it. Like, and I mean, in terms of like storytelling and craft, I mean, and I see your point, like maybe that's a thing, but I feel like, it just doesn't even seem like it's his thing. It doesn't even seem like that's necessarily the stuff that he's excited by. Could be, but I just think that those guys are... I just realized, I was like, it went from a stage where it's like, I don't think that it's a, oh, they're good and I don't get it. I, I'm like, no one really has the heart to tell them that they are third rate. They've never, they've always been lazy and easily pleased with themselves. And they should, if nothing else, their talk about criticism should can very easily be ignored you know so that's 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 where i'm going it's funny i would have thought we would have been talking about comic books i didn't think that this you know what i mean like i'm like oh wait i'll tell you what i read this week i was really scram scrambling to make sure i had stuff read so that we, we could we, talk we about it we still haven't really talked about the the tca panel what do you want to say about the tca panel jeff i uh, other than it was unfortunate and i'd like to think that today's creators are more uh, aware, shall we say? I pray to God that's the case. But wasn't there some case with Robert Kirkman like a couple of months ago where he like said something about how women aren't as strong as men or some shit like that? Oh God, I would not be surprised. And also, I, it's funny. I was like, wouldn't it be great if today's creators were more aware? And then I was like, oh, that's right. Mark Miller's rape comments. Well, yeah. So clearly, right. I'm talking out my ass. Yeah, I think that's a really good transition. Although, honestly, how do I put it? Like, Miller is... I found those comments not as worrisome because I long ago ascribed Mark Miller to pathological liar status. You know what I mean? So yeah, I don't... It, it, it's very interesting. I, uh, I, tie, I find them very... I'm going to go on a long way around to get where I'm going, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Doctor Who announced the 12th Doctor. Oh, that on, was something we should talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And during the show, Stephen Moffat answered people who said that maybe the new Doctor should be a woman by saying, I'd like to see a man play the Queen. And people went apeshit on the internet about this. People were talking about how offensive it was and everything. And all I really thought that was, Stephen Moffat really knows how to make you guys dance like puppets. Yes, exactly. Stephen Moffat knows how to make you guys react. Mm -hmm. And... You know, reading the Miller comments, that was my thought again. And what was really interesting was the Miller story broke as this, at the same time I was writing something for Hollywood Reporter about Mark Miller. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember, or maybe you don't, that Jim Carrey uh, in January this year said he would not be promoting Kick-Ass 2, which he appears in, because he's had a change of heart about the level of violence in the movie, and he thinks that in the wake of the Sandy Hook shootings, Kick-Ass 2 is uh, too violent and, and destructive to the, the conversation, essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. he, he distanced himself from the film. Right. Uh, Mark Miller was was interviewed this week about you know how do you feel about this, 
And Mark Miller, I swear to God, was like, it's great. He gave us $30 million of free publicity. Yes. And that was like, reading his rape comments while writing that piece, it really was a moment of, oh, that's right. Mark Miller will say anything to get you talking about him. Because he legitimately believes that any publicity is good publicity. He genuinely thinks that. Yeah, he really So I fully, fully believe that someone was like, Mark Miller, you apply, you know, you appeal to the lowest common denominator and you use rape as a tactic. Do not think that's terrible. And part of his brain was like, "What can I say that will make people say my name a lot?" Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I think uh, honestly at this point, the only I, and so this is it. I mean, there's every once in a while, there's times where I read things from from Mark Miller that I uh, that I support and. I would never think of repeating them out loud. You know what I mean? Not like I'm like, oh, yeah, like my pro-rape agenda, for example. But no. Yeah, he... Like, really? You might want to walk that one back slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, allow, me to, allow me to clarify. He said some comments about creator-artist participation that I think oh, yeah, made 50/50. a ton of sense. You know, where he's yeah. like, you do it 50-50, then you will always have the best artists lining up to work with you. And... I I believe that. I totally believe that his ability to continue to great, get great people is due to the fact that they see significant amounts of money for it. And I think that that's, that's smart and the right way to do it. But I'm also like, but I, even saying it out loud, I'm like, but Mark Miller could turn around and roll that back tomorrow because I don't think he, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I literally don't trust anything that that guy is going to say about anything. Like, I, he'll say it, but I don't feel like it, like you said, it, it might as well just be being spat out by a computer. Like, because it doesn't, it has, it is so not tied to anything authentic, you know? What, what was heartening for me, and I think the, the most valuable things come out of this Mark Miller rape comment, mm-hmm. was the wholesale rejection of it by fandom. Mm-hmm. You didn't get anyone actually defending him, or not that I saw. Mm-hmm. I think you got. I think the most Miller apologetic anyone got was like us. Mm-hmm. Which was the, oh, whatever. <laughs> right, oh, that guy. Why are you even you know, listening it, to what it, he it, says? It, it was very heartening to not see someone try and make his case. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very heartening not to see someone say, well, if you think about it, he's right. It's much worse to be decapitated than to use rape a lot. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I thought it was that that was that was like the one positive of the whole thing for me. Right. Right. I mean, ultimately, Mark Miller remains, you know, don't feed the troll. Yeah, basically. Which, which is incredibly hard to do when he keeps on getting these high-profile jobs. <laughs> well, and he, <laughs> yeah, and people he, are going to be like, "Hey, yeah, yeah." He's got the he he. People will continue to stick a microphone in front of his face, and he will continue to say things. So, yeah, that cycle's really not going to end. But in a way, um, yeah, I I find it more more easily to disregard. Like I said, it'd be very interesting to see things talked about more currently by. I don't know, you know, creators like Kirkman or um, Brian K. Vaughn, of course, or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a variety, like a, just a variety of, of like people, like sort of the, you know, Ed Brubaker. Like I'm having these weird moments where it's like um, one of the things after, after the DC thing, I'm very loath to bring this up, but after the whole DC bullshit, part of me was like, fuck, I should 
why aren't I boycotting these guys? You know, and so I'm really on the fence. Like, I'm like, well, maybe, like, uh, so I'm trying to figure it out. But one of the things that was a relief was going to the comic book store, and for the most part, the things that I picked up this week and the things that I read leading up to this were kind of safely outside the Marvel DC paradigm. Now, I actually have had a variety of people who have uh, whatnots who afforded me some really generous, like, digital codes for things. So, in theory, I can read, like, you know that enormous, like, Avengers versus X-Men companion thing that collects, like, oh, yeah, yeah. all the... Like, you know, very, very kindly. I want to say, I, I'm, I, Tim, I'm sorry I can't get your name right because I can't open my screen without us freezing up, but I think it's D- Tim Reifenberg sent me the codes after he bought those on sale and I, I, he was like this is great It's a, I got a great price I've got all these comics to read he's enthused he took the time to pass on the codes that's hundreds of pages of material you know I and I was so touched and I got maybe like six pages into it and I'm like man I really I'm just dying to read Rogue Trooper you know like I just gotta like I'm sorry I'm not this is gotta, gotta get my role is it is it the old school Rogue Trooper? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What it is is it's the first it's the first volume, the Tales of New Earth. Oh, the Tales the, of New Earth. Yeah. yeah, the collection stuff, which I have which is some great stuff and some terrible stuff in there. You know, I'll get there. I'm sure I, I'll get there. Highs, highs and lows. Yeah, but the first to me, the first five chapters or six chapters that I that I sort of read all at a go is like. It's Dave, like, it must have, to me, it's it's like Dave Gibbons drawing work that is just eye-poppingly great. I mean, his work looks yes. astonishingly good. And Rogue Trooper is one of the best dumb ideas ever. You know what I mean? Like, I was really, I'm in love with how great, that, like, I'd heard of Rogue Trooper and it wasn't the, the really... chips? Yes! Fucking A. The fact that that guy is like arguing with his backpack while he kills people makes me want to cry. It's such a great comic book idea. Like, there's no way you could Gunner really do and it seriously. Tyson and Helm. I love that's their names as well. And the idea is that was their names before then. As well. I know, I know. I'm like, okay, that's a little cheesy. I mean, but seriously, that's like. hilarious. Like, there's part of me where I'm like, you know, you could. Like, it's just a step away from being a TV series. Honestly, it really is. I mean, oh, no, you know, well, it's it's kung fu. Yeah, it's kung fu, but with the weird personal interaction. Plus, if you if you sort of if you super lostified, or I guess the new term might be orange is the new blackified. The backstories, so you got flashbacks to the yeah. chipped characters and their interactions leading up to that, and had a, a richer yeah. backstory with them. It would be really great. Like it would be, people would be like, "I can't believe I'm watching something so weird." But yeah, but so, but reading it is just fucking awesome. I don't know if you saw my tweet, but yes, I did. What made you pick up Rogue Trooper? Uh, like, was the book just there, and you thought I really want it, or like, is it because of the IDW announcement, or what was it about? No, um, well, so so I've had so I've had the 2000 AD bug, as you know, digitally for about yeah, for a while. you know, yeah. So at that time, like around the time that that was going on, I got the Judge Dread case files, like Volume One, Volume Five, and the first Rogue Trooper. Oh, you know what it is? It predates. It was I loved the Nemesis volume so much yes. I was like I gotta try this other stuff and that's around the time this stuff came out 
So so I jumped from the first volume of Nemesis, picked the stuff up, and of course, needless to say, it's very, very different. So I was like, ah, I don't know. And then through the miracle of being of this podcast and us knowing, you know, uh, Michael Mulcher at least a little bit, uh, I was able to access the FTP and I downloaded the PDF of Rogue Trooper um, and then I had that on my iPad. So I just started the other day, it was like, well, I want to read stuff prep for you and us, you and I talking, but I also just want to read stuff that's like I didn't want to. I was too lazy to go over to the bookshelf and grab things. So I'm like, well, let's see what I've got saved in Goodreader on my PDFs. And I was like, oh, so that's why I read Rogue Trooper, like the first five or six chapters of that, and followed it up with the first four or five chapters of Catch It One. Which, holy fucking shit, Graham, are you familiar with Catch It One? Not as familiar as it should be. Like I know it exists and I know what it is, but introduce it for the audience. For the people who, because it's very possible. Also, we should say very quickly. Rogue Trooper is a 2000 AD strip from like 1981. Yeah, it started out super through, early. It continues through like 1991, maybe, and then got reboot. Mm-hmm. It, there was a reboot that was shall we say misguided, um, and the reboot ended up with the Mike Fleischer stuff that we were bad mouthing last week. Ooh, oh yeah, he would be. I can see where I can see where well, that the, would be like. It would almost seem the, like a good idea, a, and then be a terrible idea. Well, the real bad idea for the Rogue Trooper reboot was it gets rid of the talking helmet, the talking gun, and the talking bag. No, no. Yeah, it totally just dumps them. Yeah. Ah, uh, no, you can't do that. Yeah. Like, that's just, yeah. it's so, I know it's goofy, they, but it's they're, awesome. They're, but they're the gimmick. Yeah, they're right. the gimmick. I mean, well, the thing is, is, you've got enough other gimmicks, but how do I put it? That's That's the part of the gimmick that turns it into... More than the sum of its parts. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so Catch It One actually came out in 1998, uh, if I'm understanding that correctly, because uh, it's one of those things where the person is very quickly talking about um, the 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 like talking about the reprints. It was also reprinted in America as Apocalypse Meow, which is actually one of the funniest fucking names I think of all time. So. Catch It One... It's not as good as Catch It One, because Jeff, Catch It One. Yeah, Catch It One is amazing. It is basically a realistically, heavily researched war comic set during the Vietnam War with the mind-breaking change that the Vietnamese are all cats and the U.S. forces are all rabbits. So... You actually, so you have rabbits running around looking tough while firing meticulously drawn firearms, you know, and setting off traps and talking about how Charlie has you pegged down, you know, and having to like pop That's... smoke and make horrible decisions. Like it's great. It's like, it's like it, it's like a Sergeant Rock comic, except you know, for Vietnam incredibly well researched and then insane because as you whenever you start snapping into the story and getting behind the focus of it he will so photorealistically draw a rabbit in a camo hat that your mind snaps in half like it is (laughs) great it really is and so there's something about rogue trooper and catch it one reading them back to back i said it gave me a comic book concussion and it really is true like my brain was just 
I don't know how to describe it because it really I was caught in that zone of like you know this is wonderful and but in that weird like you've you've stumbled across something that seems so unbelievably idiosyncratic and so unafraid of appearing stupid both of those comics that they have just a remarkable force to them like it's kind of okay and then it's that weird like you sort of snap into your ironic phase and you sort of break out of it and laugh as a weird way of relieving tension and then you get right back into it and i mean those stories aren't any deeper i mean god no and this is kind of what i'm saying is is like uh, five pages of Rogue Trooper, with its limitations, does more than I feel that the than I feel Eric Larson has done with Savage Dragon. And I'm sorry, that's like silly, but at the same time, it's like they're both silly. They both have limitations. They're both sort of like I don't care what you want. This is what I am giving you, kind of thing. I mean, the great thing about 2000 AD is that's so not the case like part of what i love about the that's days the 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 era from action to 2000 ad is they really are trying to pander to you um and then and then making it crazy and there's something that's so great yeah, about that yeah it, it it really was this is what you want plus yeah exactly exactly and that is something that that i really that kind of feels like that's how I would define good comics, you know? I mean, or at least good, you know, quote-unquote mainstream comics. This is what you want plus. Because that's what I felt like when I first started reading Marvel Comics. Is like, this is everything that I wanted, which is people being punched in the face, but more. You know? And looking back on it, some of the moreness was okay, I guess, you know, like, at the time, I wasn't so crazy about the fat guy wearing the warthog costume who drove a truck and operated a CB radio. Now I adore him, you know, but I'm, you know, but at the time, it was, again, I remember, if you, we talked about Jerry Conway, if you go back and see those, uh, the two-page, two three-page sequence where Peter Parker leaves for Paris, and it's the first time he and Mary Jane Watson kiss, that's like... Yeah. That's a great sequence, and I mean, it really is a great sequence um, for its time. But even now, for the most part, it it holds up pretty well. You know, it yeah. really does. So, now anyway, so yeah, Rogue Trooper wanted to try it, had been meaning to forever, and finally it was like, okay, I'm on the iPad. I can't devour enough. Of, like they're only sending me these 2000 ADs once a week, so I can't do anything about that. I'll pick up the old Rogue Trooper, and it's like holy fucking crap, being drawn by Dave Gibbons at that time, I mean, it must have looked like a revelation back then. Because in black and white, he looks, it looks like, it looks like the second coming of Bern Hogarth or Alex Raymond. What, what is, what is really funny is, I was, I remember reading the first appearance of 2000, of Rogue Trooper in 2080 as a kid. Uh-huh. I must have been five. Uh, it didn't look like a rev- revelation at all. Right. It looked like what you expected a comic to look like. Wow. Because that's what comics looked like. Like, Gibbons had been doing Judge Dredd. Uh, not Judge Dredd. Uh, Dan Dare in 2080 before mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Gibbons had been around. Right. Right. Uh, I the, the revelation for me was, was Boland. Mm. Yeah. I remember Boland just being like, what the fuck is this? Because <laughs> it, it, was, it was Comics Plus. Yes. Gibbons... Gibbons didn't have that air of um, rendering detail mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Boland does. Like Boland really, really crazily renders, and 
Boland, at least at that time, had more of a reality to him. Oh yeah, sure. If you go back, if you go back and look at the uh, the first Judge Dread, Judge Dredd, Judge Death, sorry, mm-hmm. there is one scene in particular that sticks out to my mind to this day, mm-hmm. where Judge Anderson, I mean, it was the second one of Judge Anderson's in it, the, the first appearance of Judge Anderson at some point, she is uh, reading someone's mind and she sort of throws her head back, and there's something particularly, you can tell that he did it by looking at someone, because it didn't look like a comic book character, it looked like a real person. Yeah. And it, it's hard to describe, right. but like there was something... Uh, not ugly, but non-conventionally comic book woman attractive. Yes. About the figure. Right. Uh, that it would. That was the revolution. The revelation was, oh God, like that looks like a person. I I saw. Whereas, of... whereas Gibbons, for all for all his strengths, and I think Gibbons has a lot of strengths. Yeah. Gibbons stuff looks like. Gibbons stuff uh, for me is very informed by like DC Silverage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so it, Gibbons looks like a comic book to me. Well, it's interesting having it stripped of the the color because I'd seen Gibbons. Of course, I saw my first apparent exposure to Gibbons was on Green Lantern, and then moving yeah. into Watchmen. So yeah, I've got that super Silver Age patina to him. But seeing him in Rogue Trooper, black and white, uh, there's just there's a panel where he like takes off his backpack and he like smacks somebody with it, and it's such a full on like. It's it's black and white stuff that looks straight out of to me, like I said, Burn Hogarth, you know, and it's it's kind of brilliant. It does help that I'm sort of looking at it on an iPad, so the res- re- resolution isn't top notch. You know, the thing that's funny about Boland is I feel in many ways he all but wrecked um, Judge Dredd becoming popular over here in a way, you know, because I remember seeing his work because you know. They led with it, you know. They were like, "Hey, yes. yeah. here's here," and you so look at it. Good stuff. Yeah, and it's fucking phenomenal. And then they show you the other stuff, and I had no interest in it. You know, people like my younger brother, who I think actually had a lot more foresight and and uh, a, I think a better eye for talent, followed all the stuff, and and his collection was actually had a ton of great stuff in it, but. But at the time, I was like, okay, I'll pick up Bolin. But even sometimes it would be a Bolin cover, of course, because they were just slapping it on anything. And then you'd open it up. And it's a come down from Bolin to Carlos well, Escara. But that's, that's just you it. Know? Like, if, if you're, yeah, or uh, Mike McMahon. I remember oh, yeah, one yeah, point yeah. They, were, they were doing, like, you know, Bolin covers, Mike McMahon interiors. And I could just I just remember thinking, your mind is going to fucking split. Because yeah. these two artists are so different. If you're buying it for the cover, you're going to be appalled. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You are. You're just going to have this moment of, what the hell is that? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like, back in the day, everyone was okay with that. I mean, the number of times you pick up um, Neil Adams covers for DC books, and then you pick them up, and they're being drawn on the interior by, like, uh, Frank Springer or something like that. You're just like, oh. You know, it... yeah, they, they, they did that at Justice League all the time. You'd have mm-hmm. uh, Neil Adams, then it'd be Dick Dillon, and you're like, yeah, like all respect Dillon, but this is not the same type of art. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that was, I mean, one of the best parts I think about Michael Chabon's Cavalier in Clay is when he talks about the the beauty that is the original comics and how wonderful their covers are and how shitty everything else is inside. You know, and that's yeah. that's practically a comic book truism in and of itself so I don't know it's kind of interesting seeing the ways in which that has 
you know, I, I still think of that as like a fatal flaw for comics, you know, it's like, I, or at least, you know, at least do something in the same style. Like, you know, do someone whose work is very good and Dick Dylan-ish if you're going to have a Dick Dylan interior, you know what I mean? But, yeah. oh, hey, did you see, maybe not because you don't read Fatal, but uh, the latest issue of Fatal had a preview of the new series that um, Ed Brubaker is doing with Steve Epstein. Uh, it had oh, like no, a... I think I think I've seen it online. It's the 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 Miss Moneypenny is secretly a kick-ass secret agent. Yes, right? Velvet or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I kind of think that idea is dumb as hell. But holy shit, the art by Steve Epstein looks amazing. The the art that I've seen looks amazing, and I I think it's a dumb as hell, but I'm totally on board idea. Oh, it's totally. it's a dumb as hell in the right way idea for me. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I, I find it, I find it more interesting than the style, if only because. I think it offers more potential to be dumb, whereas mm-hmm. Fatel offers more potential to be grim. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess there's the thing of I always love dumb comics. Like, I think that is something that's inherent in there. I just guess I found it kind of... I don't know. We'll see. He'll probably pull it off, but it just sort of strikes me as something that isn't going to necessarily work for me. Maybe I'll be wrong, so... Um, so should we talk about what comics we actually... This is the problem with us starting later, is I have no idea how long we're talking for, or when we stop, or what we've, happens we've, now. We've got like another half hour. We've got half an hour. See, this is why we half can't say hour. in the beginning that, half like, you know, it's like, hey, this is our talk out our ass episode of, of we've, wait, what? We've talked out our ass quite a lot, thanks very much. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. We didn't know in our advance that we were... I honestly would have said, like, here's where Jeff talks about Bakuman... Complains about DC and how expensive Jack Kirby's In the Day of the Mob hardcover is. Um, tells everybody to get. Oh, I did. I did, and I, I, I was like, it, dude. It is. It is not a thick book. It is. Look, look. I don't know. You can see readers are screwed. That is not a thick book. Isn't that like thirty dollars or forty dollars or more? It, it is. It is thirty nine ninety nine. This is a forty dollar yeah, book. That yeah, is that's nothing. a thin $40 book, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is It is. Literally, I mean, it's oversized, right? I guess it's the same size as... Is, is it even the is same like size DC? as Spirit World? It's like maybe the same size as, as Spirit World. Like, it's the exact same. So it's close to the original size that it was published in, but it's, you know, about the same size, you know, a little bit bigger than what you're getting for the omnibuses in terms of the size of the page. Now... This is in the days of the mob. They have, you know, the first the first issue, which is pretty f- great in lots of cases. I mean, it really. I'm a sucker for Kirby, but I had no idea. And I don't know. Do you, do you know? Because I know you follow the Kirby collector a little better than I do. But um, the great thing about it is, it's it's like a it's like a it's like a horror comic. This is the warden. He's the main character who introduces all the stories. He's Warden Fry, and he's in hell. This is all the warden prison. Fry. Yeah, so <laughs> Warden Fry, like, this is hell where every, it's an enormous prison where all the famous prisoners, every prisoner has come. And uh, so... See, Kirby just cannot be shits, can he? He, he really, tries he, sometimes. Yeah, he does, he does. But he, but he really can't. And so... He, you know, he doesn't necessarily develop that framework very much. Like by the time you get to the second issue, he, it's just, you know, and it's, but it's really interesting to me that it has such a strong, 
crime does not pay ethic to it. Like it's in the days of the mob, as they point out in the um, in the introduction, it's like when the Godfather was big. So, but Kirby just can't. He can't even go to that realm of romanticizing the gangsters from the '30s, like at all. He can't. So, uh, every single one of them are introduced basically in this prison in hell and then you see them doing their shit and they're it's not even they're they're like recap stories they don't really go deep into anyone's character because he can't bring himself to really empathize with them you know so it's far from a hit for kirby you know he really can't connect with the material in a tenth of the way that he does with his other stuff you know but but I see that you're just you're selling it to me all the more. Uh, well, no, I remember reading the losers, Kirby's losers, for the first time. Yes, right. And I very much went into it and like I don't like horror comics, but I love Kirby. What's right. going to be like? And seeing Kirby fail to understand what the loser setup was, yes, was fascinating to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like seeing him be like, I, I just can't do it. Like right. these guys aren't losers. These guys are soldiers. Therefore, they're heroes. They're like. I can't get my head around this. And seeing it all unfold in the page was fascinating to me. Yes, exactly. Well, and so, and this is the thing that kills me. So the idea of him doing, like, I'm doing criminals. Right. Would just be like, I again, I have just been like, I, you know, I can't, I can't do it. Yeah. It's, it's, so the second issue is reconstructed by John Cook, which is kind of amazing, like as an archive. So it's all shot from Kirby's pencils. pencils and Well, or I guess with Royer's inks, I suppose the first issue was inked by, um, uh, Oh, I love that murdering Vince page. Clinton. I've seen that murdering page before. I love that. Isn't it so good? Much. Yeah. There's so many good pages so in great. here, but I'm so pissed at DC. It's like $40. Uh, I really thought I'd be spending a lot more of this podcast complaining about that. And it is, in a way, I'm sort of like, if they can just get me to the end of the of Kirby digitally, Kirby's Commandy digitally, I can just quit them and pretend they don't exist anymore and maybe boycott. But, you know, but that just doesn't mean Just quit anything. them, Jeff. I know. Just quit them. Copra, companion, number uh, two. Number two. Yeah. Yes. It, awesome stuff. Oh, my God. There's I, I adore this book. I think you would. I don't. I really want you to read the first volume because I'm. Part of me feels like you won't like it. I will it. one day. I, yeah, that's why I'm kind of. I love. I love that you're like you should read it because you're not going to like it. I love that. I love that you're. You're always trying to get me to read things that you think I won't like. Well, because it. Because if you do like it, you'll love it. But I think you might not because the thing that is amazing about um, Fief's work is his use of color. The fact that he's such a, like, look at this. This is such a beautiful Millerish page right here. You know, this set of sequence of panels for the fight scene. But what's great is because he uses, like, this is one of his, like, Ditko-influenced designs. Like, there's this really great, like, oh, you can see how, how do I put it? It it builds the layers of references organically. Like, I'm, like, looking at that, I'm kind of like, oh, right. Like, I really have a much stronger sense of how how Ditko influenced Miller. You know what I mean? Just looking yeah. at a couple of sequences like that. That that page uh, reminds me of something completely... Like, I'm going to go again, long way around. Okay. Uh, that page reminded me very much of Miller's early DC stuff, like Ronan and, mm-hmm. and his late Marvel stuff. Yeah. Which put me in mind of Lynn Varley, which put me in mind of... I was recently reading an interview with Trevor Von Eaton. Oh yeah, uh, about his career from comics, uh, 
uh, comics uh, interview from years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't realize that he and, Lar- Lee, he and Barley were a couple. Oh, I didn't either. Yes. In fact, in this interview, Trevor Van Eden, who apparently has is shameless in the best way, even admits that Lynn Varley took his virginity and tells you, like, between which pages of which comic it's... <laughs> like, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but that reminded me of... You know that Don McGregor and Trevor Van Eden are doing a Kickstarter, right? Yes, for a new Sabre comic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm saving up the money to contribute to their Kickstarter. Yes. I... I, I totally meant to mention it on the podcast because I feel that many people who listen to this podcast uh, may also like to contribute to that Kickstarter and may not have already have known about it. I appreciate that. We, we should that. really put yeah. a link in the yeah. in the, the show notes. Um, I'm going to contribute to it because after reading that Von Eden interview, I definitely want to throw some money his way to help him find more success than he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I think Von Eden's a, an amazing... And occasionally incredibly frustrating artist. Yes, absolutely. And so I, yeah, I, I really want to see more work from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, you know, I, the great thing, one of the few great things about being old is being able to be like, yeah, I bought Thriller new on the stands and I loved it, which shows you really how pathetic old age is going to be for me, you know. <laughs> um, but his, his story, his storytelling is amazing in Thriller and in that Green Arrow miniseries and, you know, some of the Batman material he's done. And I haven't seen enough work from him. And I the idea of him and Don McGregor doing Saber together is kind it's of kind potentially of amazing, great. Right? Yeah, it could. It could yeah. yeah, it's it's tough. It could cause... also play about horribly. Yeah. Well, there, there is the potential for it going horribly wrong. Saber really was to me le- less than the sum of its parts. You know, I bought all those issues of it, and it is it's it's Don McGregor with the Don McGregor settings turned to high. So I mean, it's it's and I mean I adore McGregor's work, but you know, and the first couple of issues where it's like it's him and Paul Galassi, of course. Galassi's art makes it look very smooth and neat. Once again, it McGregor and Billy Graham, whose work you know uh, uh, was kind of startling to me uh, to see it reprinted in this Panthers Rage uh, Marvel Masters work. I should check it out because I was repackaging that stuff. All I remember, Saber is is supposed to be this, you know, it's this post-apocalypse thing. He's a swashbuckler who looks like Jimi Hendrix. And I don't know, after a while, it's just like, by, the, by like the seventh or eighth issue, his girlfriend's like giving birth. And it's it's like basically, that's the shame of it. I bought like t- eight, nine, ten issues of Saber, and all I remember is Jimi Hendrix wiping the placenta off somebody off of child's face. That's it, and that kind of spectacular. Yeah, exactly. And so when they're like, "Hey, fund the Saber Kickstarter with the stories, the backstories behind the people of Saber," I'm like, "Ah, oh, there's going to be so much placenta. You can just tell it's there shall be placenta. Hopefully, that's the title of the graphic novel." That's I think a, be but fun. no, I I think we should put a, a link to the Kickstarter in the the show notes because <laughs> I I think I genuinely think it could be. Like spectacular or disaster, but yeah. one of those, things, like one or the other, I definitely want to see it. Yeah, I do too. Um, well, Graham, so what other what books have you read this week? Have you have you read? Uh, I I've I've read. Let's see, what have I read? Oh, I read Cartosia Tales, which I keep on meaning to point, point out to you. You've possibly seen a lot of people talking about this on Twitter. Uh huh. 
Cartosia Tales is a shared universe fantasy anthology, mm-hmm. which I will be upfront and say is possibly the least likely thing to get me interested in a comic <laughs> in the history of the world. Uh-huh. Uh, anthologies. I, I find the idea of the like the shared universe anthology that everyone is like we're contributing to the same world at the same time to be uh, bordering on insufferably wanky and fantasy as a genre I generally find to be bordering on insufferably wanky <laughs> despite that I loved Cartosia Tales loved it was completely bowled over by how much I liked it oh great um, and I, I, part of it is it gets back to what I was saying uh, Jen Vaughn's involved in it which is how I ended up with this uh-huh. who did the Avery Fatbottom um, Ryan Beard Detective from last week right that I was talking about how, I, like, I was won over by how charming and sincere it was uh-huh. and it's the same thing uh, it, there, there's a, a simplicity and an honesty to this and a lack of uh, hyperbole mm-hmm. that really worked for it in me like at no point are people like this is the fantasy universe is going to blow your fucking mind wait till you see dragons Not like there's none of that it's very humble it's very unassuming and it's really really nice work Dylan Horrocks does a strip in the first issue Ooh. that is genuinely just like the sweetest, nicest thing that I've seen in comics in the longest time. Wow. Um, yeah, it's just, it's nice, nice stuff. It's, I want to say it's available online mm-hmm. now. Hmm. Uh, it's Cartosia Tales, which is C-A-R-T-O-Z-I-A. Cartosia Tales. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, so who is it? It's uh, John Lewis is in there, Sean Cheng, Lupi McGinty, Lucy Bellwolds, uh, Sarah Beckon, Caitlin Lehman, Tom Modley, Jen Vaughn, Isaac Cates, Mike Wenthy, uh, and Dylan Horrocks hmm. are, are the people doing the. It's it's like ten stories, right? Huh. So yeah, it, well, it, worth a look. People who uh, have less of a problem with the fancy genre than me, although, like I said, I loved it, even though I really do have a problem with the fancy genre. <laughs> Let me drag you from that because John Lewis, who did True Swamp, who always sort of sticks in my mind, and Dylan Horrocks, for whatever reason, it's very easy oh, for oh, me to I, equate I, them I, with. I... Yes. Yes, Trillium number one, exactly where I was going. <laughs> Good call. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for some reason, as soon as you said John Lewis, I was like, I know he's going to Jeff Lemire. I know he is. I know he's going there. Yep. What did you. Th- I, I... Yeah, I, I'm with you. That, Are you? Okay. What you didn't see. What you didn't see. So when I said, what do you think? Jeff gave the universal face of, I don't really want to answer this question. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, it's weirdly, there's not much there there, right? Yeah, I kind of thought so. It's I'm... incredibly throwaway. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of it is the sort of very clever conceit, which great... The great thing for me about picking it up cold at the comic book store is I was so distracted and in such a hurry, I didn't catch on to the main gimmick behind it because I didn't look at the back of the book. So yeah. when I sat down and read it, and suddenly it's like, wait, what? And then I flipped it over. I'm like, oh, oh, and the covers. And I kind of had that moment of like, oh, that's kind of neat. And yet the thing that is tough about it is... How do I put it? Well, there's a couple of factors. One is I'm I both Jeff Lemire and Matt Kent, whose uh, mind management I 
I loved the first sets of issues for, and then eventually just sort of suddenly just my interest just kind of dropped off a cliff. I'm like four or five issues behind. I don't necessarily know if I'm going to catch up. Um, There's something about, like, like the art necessarily isn't for me, which so, okay, as long as they've got like a strong enough story and mind management hooked up with the way of... Lemire and Kent seem very similar to me in the sense of like man mind management has a lot of little formalist tricks to keep you reading the book and the borders and the boundaries and the secret messages and stuff and being like oh this is very clever and it it at least initially hooks you in Trillium apart from the central gag of the two stories two separate stories like meeting at their ends in the middle of the book um it which was it ended up cutting the each of the stories in half they didn't really have enough either side had enough oh, oomph. The story. yeah so yeah. i i think yeah. that was my both, both stories problem. are incredibly light i yeah. think you are, there's nothing in this first issue to convince someone who was coming to it cold yeah. i think you have to pretty much sign up and be like okay i'm going to have to give this a couple of issues to see where it goes beforehand because i think if you just went into the first issue you'd be like huh well okay and just move on right Right. Well, and and there is part of that thing of like I don't know, like so that's their issue, that's their gimmick for the first issue. I can't imagine they're going to do that for the second, or if he does, how that'll be interesting. You know what I mean? So at that point, it's like okay, so this has been maybe this is an an issue long introduction to the the mind wrap. But yeah, I'm really not like I was. Le- I w- I was. I'm afraid that I was left very very cold by it. Uh. So, yeah, I thought I would check just on the offhand chance that you were delighted by it. Um, no, I, I, I definitely wasn't. And I, I'm not... Uh, I run oddly cold in Lemire's uh, work in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this this did nothing to to convince me. In part because I feel that like he always draws the same face all the time. Yeah. Like I feel like he can draw one person. And so look if you look at the cover of Trillium, I'm kind of at a, oh, it's Sweet Tooth in Space. <laughs> But upside down. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I and get it. There really was like a. I'm, I'm finding myself like already disappointed in this comic. And then to go through the comic and there's not much. I mean, there's really not much there in terms of plot. The the is it 1914 the the soldier story takes yes, place. Yes, starts starts place at the um, end of World War. Sorry, 1921. Sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, 1921. I found that incredibly slight, like mm-hmm. amazingly slight. Um. So yeah, I I really was disappointed in in that in general. So yeah, I, I wasn't impressed. Yeah, uh, I wasn't. You know, it's funny. I'm trying to to jump on here onto. God damn it, <laughs> my um. I was going to show you what I have been reading a lot of and enjoyed this this uh month, which is um, uh, Akira Toriyama. So. Uh, Jocko the Galactic Patrolman, you probably can't see that, um, is is running in Shonen Jump Weekly, probably for about four chapters. Um, no, I'm sorry, 14 chapters total. And it is terrific. I also love Dr. Slump, which I had read in the, the... I don't know if you... Can you see that? I'm not even holding it anywhere close to where it's supposed to be. I don't even know where I'm... I can sp- see... I'm lost. I, I can see... I can see part of your screen, but I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I don't even... Oh, and it's not even on there anymore, so even better. Okay, so... <laughs> um, anyway, Dr. Slump by Akira Toriyama is what I've been reading. 
uh, that has been delightful. It's a little bit like uh, Sergio Aragonés. I mean, it's interesting because they're rerunning Toriyama's Dragon Ball, uh, the Dragon Ball Z stuff uh, in color in Shonen Jump Weekly. And I read the first chapter or two and I was like, eh, I'm not so crazy about it. And then I read the latest chapter and I was like, holy shit, this seems crazy. So I want to go back and download it. But I'm having this weird trouble with the iPad where um, uh, basically it's, I tried every time, every time I download an issue it deletes an issue that's already on there so i was going to open it up and show you and because i have so much crap on there it's already deleted like this month's issue because i downloaded a bunch of previous stuff anyway so toriyama does like some of the best humor comics i think in comics because they're just so fun and readable i think dr slump is kind of it's, you know, it's a comic book that's ide- really ideally set for, like, somewhere between five, like, eight-year-olds and 11-year-olds, you know? It's about a a, a, ma- a scientist who's created a robot girl, and then they go on to have adventures on this crazy island. But it really is. The crazy island is, like, you know, Superman's flying around on it. There's, like, aliens. There's, like, you know, the the chimes of the school you know, when the t- tone is announced is like these, like a singing dog, a singing frog, and a singing pig who like chime the times at a cue, you know, just like really ludicrous stuff. Um, and lots of poop on stick, you know, cause, cause sticks with poop on them are, you know, universally funny. Um, Toriyama is just fantastic. This, and this latest issue of, uh, uh, Jaco, the galactic, Trollman has he and this doctor he, he lands on this like lonely island uh that's basically has one inhabitant maybe two uh anyway this in this issue the he and the mad scientist who's really just a grumpy scientist go to the big city and it's just beautiful i may put up a page or two of snapshots just because i really yeah, think people would would love it i think you'd actually enjoy it tremendously so um, so yeah, after yeah. reading that and God, then picking God's up Trillium, up. yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. Uh, uh. so, uh, anything else? You must've gotten some other stuff, even if through the mail or did you buy? Uh, your no, own I, okay. I, I, I have one thing that I want to talk about that I got through the mail. I got the first collection of Talon from DC comics, Wow, which is a Batman spinoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rather than talk about the contents of the book, I want to talk about a formatting issue. Dear DC Comics, when your stories in that you're collecting in your book end in a cliffhanger, put in a to-be-continued somewhere in the fucking book. And this has been bothering me for a while, because they don't. They literally just end the story with the last page of the final issue reprinted and then go into the covers, right? Wow. Which is terrible. But it's particularly bad with this book, where the last page is literally the death of the hero. (laughs) And because there's no to be continued or anything, you literally finish it and you're like, this is the most depressing comic <laughs> I've read. This That's kind of brilliant. About how this guy can rise up against the owls and the last page is the owls kill him. The and... end. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, it really is a formatting issue. Also, spoilers for anyone because I guess I've ruined the last page of that book for you. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's amazingly just poorly edited or poorly format you need to put a page in that says to be continued or like 
keep reading for volume two or something. Yes. Because when you just finish with the final panel and there's nothing after it, although there are lots of pages of variant covers and designs, that's that's just poorly done. Mm. Bad move, DC. Yeah, bad This week bad is the move. DC sucks episode. DC sucks. But I have not been paid sucks. any attention to Marvel. Did Were there any Marvel books out? There must have been. I didn't really look at them. I, I'm sure there are Marvel books out. I didn't get any. <laughs> and so you haven't been to the store yet again, huh? No, 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 no. Dude, we uh, got to figure out a situation certain... where they can do... Del- do they do comic book delivery? They must do. Your store should do comic book delivery to you so that you can it's get these Portland. books. If anywhere does comic book delivery, then it would be Portland. Yeah, you'd um, think, right? The, the only Marvel book I can think of that came out this week that I would have picked up would be Superior Foes of Spider-Man. Mm. And even then, I'm not sure I would have picked it up because I wasn't completely on board with issue one. Oh really? So I don't know. I thought you you thought that it was some pretty good story, like like Nick. Uh... I I thought I thought it was Nick Spencer coming on a great deal, but yeah. I wasn't particularly interested in the tone of it. Uh, I see, I see. The technical chops were there. Steve Lieber are is always lovely, especially when he's got. Uh, God, I can't even remember the woman's name. Is it Rochelle Rosenberg who did the colors? Whoever did the colors for Superior Spider Man and also did the colors uh, colors for his Alabaster series. It is a wonderful colorist for Steve Lieber, right? Uh, and really, she brings out something else in his work, which I really appreciate. That's great. Uh, but the visuals alone were not enough to probably bring me back for issue two. It's one of those things that you know, if I was at the store and I had some spare money, I'd probably buy it. Right. But I wouldn't go out my way to buy. Right. Right. Well, let me see here. Let's see. Let's let's look at the shipping list because I remember Hibbs being very like, yeah, it's a light week. Um, I liked Fatal. Uh, gosh, you know, uh, Bakuman, I had to, you know, we're getting the, it's the final volume, so it's the end of the story, and, um, you know, it's really frustrating for me with Bakuman, because uh, they started doing Shonen Jump Weekly, Bakuman was being carried in it, like, so I was like, fantastic, I'll jump into that, but because they were keeping track, they were like only a month behind the Japanese releases with Shonen Jump Weekly, digitally but something like i don't know like six volumes difference from where we were from the people reading it in trade in america it was like skipping right to the end and giving us like the last you know two three months of of the book and it was kind of a killer so it was hard to sort of reread the material now in a way and not remember anything other than my crushing disappointment of like oh viz really used my appreciation for this material against me because like really they didn't you know they were more worried perhaps understandably about trying to get um the the naruto fans and the one piece fans you know moving people away all those people who said that they had to pirate the comic you know and move them to a different format than they were obviously worried about me and the very small handful of bakuman fans that being said, rereading the series was kind of the these the particularly the very last volume is very anticlimactic because it's very much less about the manga and all about the impossible romance between the protagonist and his girlfriend and how that actually works. But it isn't wouldn't that have to be the case? Like I feel that you'd ha- I mean you can't just leave those things unresolved, and so I feel that that sure. would just dominate in the end because. Let's face it, a lot of the interpersonal relationships kind of got lost in the how can we raise the stakes 
for their publishing fortunes in the middle volumes. See yeah, nothing? yeah. They, well, yes and no. I mean, I think I feel like the balance was... definitely shifted too much in the comic direction. Well, okay, really definitely went to the comic direction, which was sort of the part that I cared about. But there were a few like half-hearted when they had the writer guy, and it was the situations where he was meeting with the various women female co-creators uh, of manga who were, you know, who could have been possible romance objects. You know, it wasn't that strong a storyline, but it was kind of okay. And especially for me, the secondary storylines with the other cartoonists. In fact, the best moments in Bakuman Volume 20 are when you get to see all the other manga cartoonists at basically at the various stages of life at their drawing table or like you know trying to go out on dates with women or getting ready for their weddings after the whole romantic comedy of them meeting like that sort of stuff was actually kind of satisfying you know so um so yeah volume 20 wasn't quite a dud as 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 i thought it would be um but man i really was like i think that's part of why i I, I'm going to have to jump into another manga series because cause I miss I'm going to miss having that to look forward to, you know yeah. um, every month in, month out uh, let me see, what else was out? Avengers AI I'm sure we're both following that Avengers 17, all new X-Men number 15 uh, blah, blah, blah. Detective Comics 23, Iron Man 14 not a lot of stuff that I'm really that especially invested in, I have to say. Even in my own, like, oh, I Profit 38. I thought Profit 38 was quite good. Um, uh, that's that's another book that is just kind of doing a great job for me in terms of, like, you know, now that it's in its groove, I'm very much like, oh, I just don't want this to end. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm bummed that it only has about another 10 issues in it, and then it's going to be gone. You just wait. It won't be gone. It'll be like Brandon Graham will be replaced by Rob Liefeld. He'll well, come under the sweeping new take. I was about to say it's going to be like Ron Mars or like Eric Larson will be drawing scripts by Rob Liefeld, and then we'll be then I'll be then I will just cry tears of blood, basically. Because they'll be like, we're definitely following in what Brandon tried to set off. Yeah, and what he tried. Well, it's great. He this, so so he actually has an appearance by Suprema. You know, and I was like, you know, he's been bringing back all these, all of Liefeld's characters, so it's really weird. And yeah. I was like, oh man, he's gonna have Suprema, like, ugh. you know, I like Supreme, um, but I was kind of like, and of course, he basically has had it when Prophet goes to encounter Suprema. She has basically her powers have continued to expand, so she basically just appears as patterns of light and pure thought. So it's literally just the three diamonds of color that were the colors of her suit, basically. The red and the white and maybe the blue, purple, yellow. I don't remember, but it's kind of awesome. I was like, oh, okay, if only all of my you know comic book cameos could be in the appearances of prisms of, of their solid colors, I'd be okay with that. Like, seriously. You're going to be a big fan of my revival of Defiant, Jim Shooters, and you imprint <laughs> Prisms of Plasm is what I have. It's going to be spectacular, too. Prisms of Plasm. I have to say, like, A, like, this lenticular cover thing, like, if ever there was a follow-up, you know, like, Prisms of Plasm would probably work. 
Um, it's going to be great. It's all foil covers and foil interiors. Oh, that is great. That is that is awesome. You know, and the great thing would be that they actually will take one intern and drown them in foil and then send that to like a lucky winner of the contest who assembles who assembles the proper comic book out of the various trading cards that are randomly inserted. What I was going to say is it's it's every page is going to be part of a trading card. Right. Throughout the entire six issues and then you've got to work out what format they go in. It's a big jigsaw puzzle in the shape of pages of a foil comic. That's with cool. random embossing. On some page, how about that? <laughs> embossing. But it can't be random. The embossing is the clue. Like, you know, the worst part is, is like, there really no, no, is the, somebody the, who's the like... Die, the die-cut pages are the clue. There we go. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and don't forget those wood-blocked pages. Okay, well, so, Graham, that's pretty yeah, much we, it, we, right? We've come, we've come to the end of our, of our shift. Oh, man. Ladies and, ladies and gentlemen... Thank you for listening to us. This was, and especially, I, I do like how we started off being like, this is what we're going to talk about. And I feel like we talked around all of the subjects kind of successfully. Uh, did you think so? I thought we talked about them. I mean, I called people third rate. That should count for, like, something, right? Doesn't it? That, that's true. Uh, tune in next week. Uh, or actually, not next week, but I have to talk to Jeff Lester about this. Um, what? For another episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just you wait while we're done recording. Um, tune in in the near future for the next exciting installment of Jeff Lester Calls Creators Third Rate. And I stay very quiet because I've had a day of people calling me an H's douche on Twitter. <laughs> oh, right. We didn't talk about the H's douche. Aww. And we won't. Let's just leave it out there. Okay. It's so much funnier if we don't explain it. Yes. Okay. Um, everyone. I get to see the magic happen, everybody. I actually saw his lips move and everything. It was awesome. (laughs) We'll see you next time, everybody.